today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Hamilton police investigating a confrontation in a Walmart parking lot as a possible hate crime. Police say they responded to the call in the parking lot on Centennial Parkway North in Stony Creek at around 1 on Friday afternoon. They say a female pedestrian was hit by a vehicle during the incident and received minor injuries. Now a 47-year-old Stony Creek man has been charged with threatening death, dangerous driving, and failing to remain at the scene of an accident. He's been released and will appear in court uh, in August. Here's an audio clip of the interaction. Get out of the way! Dude. Get out of the way! You put Wait. your hands on me, I will break your Stop leg. Stop it! You're the one trying to harass me! I'm driving I'm, away! I'm trying to harass you? Dude, I'm you driving away! To, you want me to go to my country? Yeah. I'm a Canadian citizen! Show me! Prove it! I don't believe you! You don't talk like a Canadian! You don't like... I don't! I'm racist! This See, let's... I don't like you! I don't like her! I would kill your children first! Really? Yes! I would. Okay. I would. Let's take this move. Then you. Don't ever attack Perfect. me again. I will do it. You attack them. Again. Bang, bang. I am going to do it Go now. Do it. Okay. <sighs> well, uh, I'm not sure if that paints the entire picture, but at least gives you a sense of some of the intensity. Makes my skin crawl to tell you the truth. Joining us now is the chair of the Canadian Anti-Hate Network. His name is Bernie Farber, and he joins us now on the Scott Thompson Show. Bernie, how are you? I'm good, Rick. How are you? Not too bad. Listening to that audio tape, shocking to say the least. Oh, yeah. It's it's, uh, it's creepy, but it's sad to say. Uh, nothing I haven't heard before, especially in the last year or so. It, it, it just seems to be happening more and more often. Is it happening more often, or is the media reporting on it more often, or is social media, which is obviously prevalent in our lives, adding to the discussion? I, I think it's a little bit of all of that. Uh, clearly, social media is is an actor in this, but it's an actor on both sides. I mean, uh, racists use social media to spread their message, and, and others, more, shall we say, normal people, uh, Take out their iPhones, take out their uh, their their other cameras, and they film these confrontations on a, on a pretty regular basis. So we're seeing more of it, but there is also more of it. I think people over the last couple of years, and you know, I'll be very frank about this. I, I think that the change in leadership in the United States, where a leader of the free world has embraced uh, neo Nazis, actually said they're pretty good guys, uh, brought on a, a white nationalist. Um, you know, onto his cabinet. I mean, this has given a lot of energy to to the white racist movement, and it's actually allowed them, in their own way, to feel us this sense of comfort, to step out of their garbage cans, to dust themselves off, and to continue on with the hateful work that they've been doing actually for centuries. I mean, we were seeing this building even before Donald Trump stepped into the White House. Can you pinpoint why it's been ramping up over the last, I don't know, five, ten years? Um, well, actually, I would say it's been ramping up uh, more in the last three or four years, and I think the uh, apex came at Charlottesville. And of course, this was the uh, this was the uh, rally that was held by uh, by, by extreme right wing uh, nationalists um, in uh, in Charlottesville, in which hundreds showed up, in which uh, an innocent young woman was uh, was run down by a white supremacist. Um, but this was the point because it was at that time when the president. Uh, what Donald Trump actually made uh, mention of the fact that 
listen, this is a terrible thing to happen, but remember there are terrible people uh, on both sides and there are good people on both sides. And this is really what gave energy, gasoline to, to white nationalists. This is what they wanted to hear. Remember, prior to this, there has never been a world leader, never been a national leader, certainly not here in Canada, who has ever given any credence to these people. They were, they were literally hovering around the edges of society, always trying to poke in, never being allowed in. Now they're, they're trying and they're actually being successful in getting into the mainstream. And so those, you know, those people who are ultra racist have been hiding out in their basements or whatever and, you know, tapping away on their, um, on their computers, all of a sudden think, wow, I can see the light of day and I can actually go public with my racism. And that is what you're seeing. You're seeing it in Canada, you're seeing it in the United States, you're seeing it in Great Britain and in Europe. It's happening all over the place. And it's, it's something that I think we have to find a way to bring in the check. And there's the million-dollar question. How do you turn the tide? Is the tide turnable? It, well, it is turnable. We've turned it before. You know, back in the 90s, when I was uh, the head of the Canadian Jewish Congress, we monitored, did research, and reported on the growth of, uh, of white supremacy in Canada and around the world. And it's really education, which is not the panacea necessarily, but one of the main ingredients that is necessary. People have to understand, at least here in Canada for sure, we live in a huge, diverse community. I mean, uh, actually speaking, we are all immigrants, with maybe the exception of indigenous people, who are, by the way, strangely enough, one of those groups that are on the top four or five listed groups that racists and hate mongers attack. But all of us have come from someplace else. And we have to understand this, and we have to learn this, and we have to learn what hate does to society, how it corrodes in the edges and moves on to the inside. We were able to do that in the late 90s, and, uh, and that's number one. Number two, we learned how to work cooperatively using both education, our anti-hate laws, which were a very important factor in, in, in stemming hate, and, of course, working with police, with the RCMP, OPP, Hamilton Police, Toronto Police, you know, whatever the case may be, uh, in um, ensuring that these groups never got a foothold. We kind of let that go during the ISIS crisis, as we should have, because that became a real clear present danger. But if we look at what's happened in Canada over the last four years, the real danger, the danger meaning violent danger, has come from the extreme right and not from ISIS, as people had originally anticipated. We're chatting with uh, Bernie Farber, chair of the Canadian Anti-Hate Network, uh, chatting about uh, last week's incident at the Walmart parking lot in Stony Creek, in which a Stony Creek man is now facing charges in terms of some of the uh, hateful words that he expressed towards uh, another individual or a couple of individuals. Back to the social media aspect, it, 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 it's so easy now to uh, spread your views and, and spread hate online and get other like-minded people to kind of band together. Uh, absolutely. As a matter of fact, if you think about it, you know, back before Facebook and Reddit and Twitter and YouTube, if we can think that far back, um, these people had to literally stand on a street corner with, uh, you know, leaflets and hand them out. A good day, somebody would take five, maybe ten leaflets, read it and throw it into the garbage. Today, all you need is a laptop, and with the push of a key, you can reach tens of thousands of people, tens of thousands of people. And interestingly, numbers have never been a great piece for the extreme right. Uh, you know, there was a, um, a rally in Parliament Hill three weeks ago, and 150 people showed up. And people said to me, 150 people, why are you getting worked up? 
Because, Rick, it takes only one, two, or three of those 150 to become radicalized, uh, to touch off their violent cell, and to take the kind of action that we saw in Quebec City, where Alexandre Bissonnette, the now convicted killer of uh, six uh, Canadian Muslims and uh, injured 19 more, walked into a mosque, a, faith, uh, you know, a place of faith and worship, and, and shot it up. And it was only because he became radicalized online that he did that. We saw the same thing with Alex Manassian, um, who got radicalized on Intercel uh, for uh, for the truck ramming that, that happened here in, in, in Toronto. So it's not the numbers. As a matter of fact, the numbers are, are inconsequential because you don't need a lot of numbers to create havoc. And with the world going towards a larger digital landscape in the future, uh, it, it seems like hate crimes are only going to intensify because of the power of the online world. In, in, indeed. And we used to actually have some good tools in, in, a, in the tool chest to deal with this. Um, back in 2012, we had a section of the Canadian Human Rights Act, Section 13, which dealt with online hatred. Uh, Prime Minister Harper at the time repealed that law at really the request of the extreme right or, or the right, uh, hard right-wing elements in Canada. Um, although that law was found to be constitutional by the Canadian Supreme Court, we no longer have that uh, tool in our toolbox in order to deal with it. So there is now talk about bringing back a similar kind of law to deal with specifically Internet hate that is not in the criminal code but is in civil rights law instead. So you know, we're looking at ways and means with which to do that. Our network, the uh, Canadian Anti-Hate Network, has now gathered the top experts on hate crime and white supremacy in this country. People like Dr. Barbara Perry, Dr. Ryan Dennis. Um, there, 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 there are many of them who are now working together to actually plant out on an, and graph on a map where these groups are, where they congregate, what they're doing online, how they're getting access to the dark net. So we're, we're beginning to work on that. That's privately funded. We, we're able to do that because of the charity of and, and the largesse of people like yourself and others who come online, antihatecanada.ca, and, and donate their time and, and donate funds to, to help us out. So we have a lot of work to do. We want to bring government into it. We want to bring education into it. We want to bring police into it. But we can't falter because, as you quite rightly say, uh, you know, the, the, the spread of, of, of digital media is only getting more, and we have to keep up with that. We're in a really difficult and, and really messed up time, because when you think of, you know, hate crimes uh, and, and being in a, maybe at least in North America, the most inclusive time in our history where support for the LGBT community, and rightfully so, is is off the charts. Same-sex marriage and relationships. We have become a, a much more inclusive society, yet at the same time, we might be as uninclusive when it comes to immigration and, and religions. And, and I don't really see that changing, which and, is hard to believe. It is hard to believe, and it's actually quite remarkable, because I would believe that you have listeners listening to us right now whose parents or grandparents or great-grandparents only cut into this country because of the commitment of governments to make changes, to bring immigrants in, to give them a chance. And their children and their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren today are blessed because of that opportunity. 
So it, it's really hard for me to understand. I'm a child of, of immigrants. My father was a Holocaust survivor and came here in 1948, right after the war. And, and had Canada not opened its doors, I don't know what would have happened. I mean, thousands came in and, and started new lives, and their children became doctors and lawyers and uh, scientists. You know, we tend to sometimes look at the negative uh, around immigration, and there isn't a lot of negative, but people with sourness in their hearts, that's what they do, and, uh, you know, we have to push that away. I think Canada is one of the greatest countries in the world to live in. Uh, we are one of the most multicultural nations on this earth. It's only brought us good things, and yet there are really sad and evil people out there that are willing to try and turn the clock back We've got to grab hold of that little dial and make sure that they're, they're not able to do that. Our guest, uh, we got a couple more minutes with Bernie Farber, chair of the Canadian Anti-Hate Network. We're talking about the recent hate crime in the uh, Walmart parking lot in Stony Creek, in which a 47-year-old man is now facing charges. Is, is the easy answer just teach our kids better in school or, or, or at home? Well, uh, that's, uh, it, it's not such an easy answer. It is the answer, but we have to find the you know the right uh, tools and able to to be able to teach them properly. And many parents are just you know they feel they don't have the time. They feel that the school is going to do it. Sometimes the school doesn't do a, you know an exceedingly good job. I mean, it's only part of the answer. As, as I said earlier, we do have anti-hate laws in this country. They're not used very often. And by the way, they shouldn't be used very often because they do have a tendency to curb free speech, which is a cherished right here. But hate speech is not a cherished right. And I think police have to be more careful and more focused on the need to take action when hate crimes exist. So this action, this terrible racist incident that occurred in, in Hamilton, from the clip that you played and from what I've seen and from what I've heard, it has certainly the elements of a hate crime. And there is a section of the Canadian Criminal Code. So, for example, if, if an assault was committed, as it seems to have been committed here with a, with a hit and run, um, uh, you, you get charged for the assault. And if there was an element of hatred in it, you get also charged with, the, with hateful intent, which then tends to put the sentence up much higher than it would have been otherwise. That has to be another one of those tools that are used. People have to learn that hatred is not something that we're going to tolerate in this country ever. And unless our courts and our police, and that's where it starts, put that into effect, it's not going to happen. The opposite view of that is, you know, if someone's committing a hate crime, they're not necessarily thinking about the penalty or or what could happen to them if they got quote-unquote caught. Uh, Is that even a factor in terms of whether hate crime penalties are stiff enough? Not, not, not in my view, not whatsoever. I mean, ignorance of law, of course, is never any excuse, but hatred is never any excuse. I mean, it's bad enough that you commit an assault. It's, it's worse if that assault was committed solely because of the person's color of their skin or because of that person's face. Imagine if you're walking down the street and you have to, you happen to be a person of color and, and, and you get assaulted simply because of that reason. That's not something that we want to tolerate. And I, I would say that the vast majority of your listeners, the vast majority of Canadians, agree with that. I wholeheartedly agree with that as well. Um, Bernie, where can we get more info on the Canadian Anti-Hate Network? I would ask everybody listening to go to antihate.ca. Uh, there's lots of information up there already. And if you have the will and the wherefore, please press on the, uh, the button that allows you to, to donate to our cause. Bernie, always a pleasure. Uh, keep up the great work. Thanks, Rick. Have a good day. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML.
The Ontario government is going to allow private stores to sell marijuana once recreational cannabis becomes legal on October 17th. We all have it circled on our calendars for one reason or another. The government, set to make the official announcement this week, is going to control the distribution of the product to the stores, and they're also going to manage online sales. Now, you probably remember the former Wynne government was going to give the LCBO uh, a monopoly on recreational marijuana. With 40 stores slated open this year under an LCBO subsidiary called the Ontario Cannabis Store, OCS. Now, the new system is going to mirror uh, Alberta's model, which is going to allow for privately run cannabis stores to sell marijuana with licenses granted by the Liquor Commission. Premier Doug Ford already indicating that he was considering the private sector, saying in late June that he doesn't believe government should stick their nose into everything. Now, this debate, you might be on one side or another. You might say, hey, no, you know what? We should have let the LCBO subsidiary have complete control over the sale of recreational pot. Or you might be on the other side of the fence and saying that, no, you know what? Private stores should be able to sell this product. Joining us now on the line is Trina Fraser, partner, Brazeau Seller Law, with an expert in business transfers, cannabis law, corporate slash commercial law, intellectual property, litigation, and technology law, and she joins us now. Trina, good afternoon. Hi. Is all of that on your business card? <laughs> no, no, it's not. Okay, good to hear. Uh, let's let's talk uh, about this uh, proposed plan that the Premier has instituted. And maybe we'll start with the easiest question. Will Premier Doug Ford's plan to have private stores sell marijuana be ready in time for October 17th? I, I don't think we'll actually see retail storefronts opening their doors on October 17th. How far we'll get in the um, licensing process remains to be seen. I do believe that it's it's very realistic that we can have certainly an application process up and running and applications being submitted and being processed by then, but I don't think it's realistic to think that those stores would have a license, any required municipal approvals, and be built out with stocked shelves and employees trained, ready to actually do business with the public on October 17th. How long do you think the application process will take? Are we we talking months from October 17th or or several weeks? Well, that remains to be seen. We really don't know yet what the application process is going to consist of. I think probably the biggest question mark I have at this point is what municipal approvals are going to be required and what municipalities will do with that and, and, and how time-consuming that, that process might be. But even at the provincial level for the licenses themselves, we're not sure what uh, security checks are going to be done yet, for example. We're not sure how this um, you know, department that's going to be processing these licenses is going to be staffed and funded and trained, and so we don't know how you know, ready. There, there's going to be a flood of applications. There's no question about that. There will be hundreds and hundreds of them. So how quickly they can realistically process those, um, we don't know, know yet. Do you uh, expect some sort of application cap to be interested, i.e. You know, only a certain amount of stores uh, per capita or in, in a certain area of the province? How do you think that's going to work? I would be surprised if there's an overall number of uh, a cap on the number of stores across the province. I think more likely the province will leave that up to the municipalities to determine what the density of those stores will be within their own jurisdictions. But 
really what I'm more interested in is whether the province will cap the number of licenses that any one or one affiliated group of licensees can obtain, because that will speak um, to whether, you know, this is going to be a, a retail model that will see big business, you know, step in and take over, or whether it will really make uh, space for smaller operators. When you say big business, you're you're thinking of the big box stores. I mean, could we see cannabis sales in Home Depot or Walmart? Uh, I don't know about Home Depot or, or, or Walmart, but you know Loblaws for sure. Okay. Uh, because they, you know we already know that they've applied for and obtained licenses in other provinces. So um, I think we can, ex- and, and and not just um, you know existing stores of that nature, but also um, large licensed producers as well. Uh, and and you know other kind of well-funded cannabis entities that have built up um, uh, you know the uh, capital funds necessary to build out you know dozens if not hundreds of stores if they're you know given the ability to do so. We're chatting with uh, Trina Fraser, partner with Brazil Seller Law, about the province's plan to allow private stores, retail stores, to sell cannabis once it's legalized on October seventeenth. In terms of whether or not it's a small store or a big box store, a Loblaw grocery store, whatever the case is, uh, they have to be sold in a particular area of that store, correct? Well, we don't know that yet either. So I I think the legislation, the way it was drafted and and passed in Ontario, does require it to be a standalone store, but it required it to be a government-run standalone store. So I think we can assume that that part of the model will remain, and we can expect these to be stores where um, only cannabis and cannabis accessories would be sold. Um, Whether there would be an ability to, you know, partition within an existing store and create a separate area that would sell cannabis, we we just don't know yet if that's part of what the province is contemplating. We do know, though, it has to follow the same uh, in terms of marketing laws as as tobacco, correct? Pretty similar, yeah. There's pretty plain packaging that's that's quite similar to tobacco and and essentially a ban on what we'd consider conventional marketing and advertising, yes. You mentioned municipal approvals. Uh, Part of that is going to be zoning. It's been a topic of discussion already because we understand that uh, some uh, outlets or even some stores might be near or or within the vicinity of schools. And obviously we don't want children to be, uh, you know, impacted by this. Uh, Whether that's going to come to fruition or not is is probably a a debate for another time. But in terms of zoning, where should these stores be located? I know that's up to the municipalities, but what are some municipalities or what are some people asking of you and, and where they should be located? Well, this is going to. This is an issue that municipalities are going to have to address very quickly, and it, it really hasn't been one that they've had to address to this point because what they had expected until last week was a very slow and steady um, unfolding of government-run stores with a government promise to consult with the municipality prior to announcing the location. So there really wasn't any ability to address zoning density and, um, you know, issues. But they're going to have to now, and they're going to have to do it very quickly, because if uh, there is no specific zoning for cannabis retail stores, it would arguably fall within maybe a more general permitted use. And, you know, if, if someone opens up in advance of zoning changes taking place, they could be grandfathered. So municipalities are going to have to turn their minds to this. What are the sensitive uses that they uh, would not want to be adjacent to a cannabis store? And how much of a setback would they uh, want to achieve? And, of course, you have to balance that. All If you make it so restrictive, 
uh, that essentially there's not room for many stores in your municipality, then are you, uh, you know, undermining the intention of displacing the black market? So that's the tricky balancing act that um, that the municipalities are going to have to address very soon. Is there a big winner and is there a big loser in terms of Ford's plan? Well, I, for sure, the the industry is very happy about this move because it it, it does and and entrepreneurs, right? Because this this creates a, a huge opportunity for retailers within the space. Um, at the end of the day, as far as consumers go, I believe consumers are going to win too because we're going to see a much quicker rollout of the number of stores that's necessary to actually meet the demand. Uh, you know, to to say that at best case we we were going to have 40 stores on October 17th uh, with a government-run model, which is you know is ridiculous when you think there's more dispensaries today in Hamilton than that. So this is what we we're going to have across the whole province. Um, so, so we will see an ability to to fill that demand much, much, much quicker through a private model, and 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 hopefully we'll see stores that are much more catered to um, at the consumer experience that the public is looking for, within the confines of what they're allowed to do by law. Yeah, uh, one of the one of the losers, I, I just garner this from the tweet that he sent out, would be Opsu, and, and their union president Smokey Thomas said, "quote." This would be a bonanza for organized crime. They could legitimately get licenses, distribute cannabis, and get very wealthy doing it. Do you buy his claim? No, not at all. I mean, there's a. I mean, on the production end of things, the federal government has very strict security clearance um, checks that are done on uh, the principles of the company, and those those measures are even being upped under the Cannabis Act come, come October 17th from what we have in the medical system right now, and I fully expect that the provincial retail licensing system will also have similar security checks. Um, the regulatory requirements to follow, again, right from pr- cultivation, processing through to sale, the tracking that has to be um, followed, the reporting that has to be made to various levels of government, it's, it's, it's pretty intense. So, no, I don't think there's, it's just room for organized crime to, you know, walk right in and take over. I, I don't think that's uh, a realistic fear. Um, and I also don't think it's... Um, you know, I don't think there's much to the argument either that you know, private retail can't or won't um, age verify customers. We we know that obviously any employee can be trained to do that. I'm sure there'll be checks in place and you know, mystery shoppers or whatnot to ensure that those age verification steps are being taken properly by retailers. I just don't think that's a, you know these these concerns are realistic. That's one of the big worries, probably of, of parents or people who are against what Ford or, or, or even uh, you know against the marijuana legislation. Period is that you know when you are now selling this product in retail stores, uh, you know kids or, or teens are going to be able to get their hands on this more easily. Well, I, what I would say to parents that are worried about that is your your child will, it'll always be easier for them to buy it from somebody on the street than it will be to walk into a retail store and buy it. So the more that we can um, enable the, the, the legal market to become successful and displace that black market, it's only going to actually help um, reduce the accessibility for your kids. A couple more questions for Trina Fraser, partner with uh, Brazil Seller Law. We're just talking about uh, the Ontario government's plan to make uh, recreational marijuana available in retail stores, not just government-run facilities. Uh, the, the timeline's still October 17th, but whether these stores are going to be open and uh, up and running and selling this in time uh, is another question. Um, one of the pillars of the federal government's pot plan uh, it was to mitigate the criminality of pot. Does selling it in private stores uh, help with that goal? 
Uh, definitely. I mean, we have to look. We Really what we want to do at the end of the day is for adults who choose to consume cannabis, we have to make sure that we are creating an opportunity for them to buy legal product, which is actually appealing enough to them to choose that source as opposed to an illegal source because the illegal sources are, are plentiful. Um, so, so we have to think about taxes and overall price, product selection, product quality, buying experience, availability. All of these factors are going to go into um, people's decisions about where they, they purchase their cannabis. So yes, if we can unroll private retail stores at a more rapid pace than government-owned stores and that those stores are going to be reactive to consumer demands, uh, that is going to go a long way to helping us displace that illegal market. Uh, to that end as well, uh, you know, the quality of the cannabis that's going to be sold in these stores is probably going to be better and, and, and safer than what's on the street. Safer for sure, because yeah. it, there's very stringent testing for, you know, all sorts of things that you don't want to be in the products that you're consuming in your body. So um, I, I'd say that's, that's uh, for sure. And, you know, there's varying opinions about quality, but, you know, for sure the existing licensed producers out there are producing very high quality cannabis, and that will continue to be the case. And, um, you know, they'll just go through a process of convincing consumers that it's as good, if not better, than what you can buy in the black market. Last one for you. Has has pricing been finalized in terms of what it's going to cost, and is that going to differ from province to province? It will differ from province to province for sure. Um, each provincial distri- distribution agency is negotiating its own supply deals and has its own ideas about wholesale prices. Um, and then, you know, retailers beyond that will be able to, in most provinces, I think in Ontario, but again, subject to the provincial government's announcement, will be able to mark up as they see fit. The, you know, the goal was that there would be product available on, on the legal market, which would come you know, tax in all-inclusive at a price of around $10 a gram. Obviously, there would be premium pr- um, pricing for, for more finished products and maybe uh, higher quality products beyond that, but that there would be some availability at the $10 mark. That's the, the goal as far as being able to displace the black market. But um, you know, we really don't have a good sense yet of where exactly we're going to land on that, especially not in Ontario. Ontario is still in the process of signing, um, you know, MOUs with the, the licensed producers for supply, and we don't know what the distribution markup is going to be, and we don't know what pricing, if any, restrictions are going to be put on the retailers yet. Trina, good stuff. Uh, enjoy the insight and uh, enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. <sighs> the Hamilton Tiger Cats, at one point in this young CFL season, 2-1. and one. Tops in the East Division, sole possession of first place. And suddenly, over the last four weeks, with a buy-in there, they've lost three in a row. They've looked horrible in doing so. And back-to-back losses against Saskatchewan and last Saturday against Ottawa. They're 2-4. and four. Still second in the woeful East Division, but they're uh, seventh in the Canadian Football League in terms of uh, wins and losses and points. What's happened over the last number of weeks? Here to help us fill in some of the blanks is Don Landry, columnist with CFL.ca, also the stadium announcer for the hated Toronto Argonauts, and he joins us now on the Scott Thompson Show. Don, how are you? Rick, I'm good. How are you doing? Not too bad. Thanks for joining us today. So, uh, you know, easy question off the top. What's happened to Hamilton? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I heard your prelude there. I'm like, I hope he's not going to ask me for an answer to that. <laughs> what's, your, what, what <laughs> what's your best guess? Um, 
<laughs> people will hate this. Long season, ups and downs, having some downs right now. Uh, on Saturday, I thought, well, it's tough when you don't have Terrence Tolliver and Luke Tasker in your lineup, particularly Luke Tasker, who just is open on every single play. I maintain that. He, you should just throw to him every time you drop back to pass because he's almost always open. He is so crucial to that offense. And it's funny, too, Rick, because at the beginning of the game, the Ticats were moving the ball pretty well, and they had guys wide open. And I was about to tweet, oh, the run and shoot is really a beautiful thing when it's clicking on all cylinders. And then things started to slow down. They they were eating up yards, but they they got into red zone trouble. So, uh, boy, uh, I... Maybe some protection issues as well. They traded a couple of offensive linemen. Uh, but why things dry up the way they do, I wish I had the definitive answer for it. What I can say is, you know, I look at this Ticat roster like everybody else, I think, and sees all kinds of talent and thinks that it should be better uh, as a collective. And I believe it probably will be sooner rather than later. Seems like I was having this discussion at this point last year, but uh, <laughs> I digress. They started 0-8. At least they've yeah. won two games in the first third of the season, so there's something uh, I think at least Ticats fans can look at to say, all right, we're making a little bit of progress. Uh, from where I'm coming from, you know, what's happened to Hamilton being the question, I would say it's it's a multitude of things. Number one, it's uh, a lot of new players in, in different positions in terms of, and I'm talking about the coaches as well, in terms yeah. of how they're executing this offense. Uh, we'll get to the Jeremiah Masoli debate in a second, but here's a quarterback who's still in you know the 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 young part of his career. Yeah, he's 12 and 13 as a starter. Yeah, he hasn't uh, thrown a bunch of touchdowns this season. He is moving the ball, but they get to the red zone, the green zone, the go zone, whatever you want to call it. They seem to be stubbing their toe. Now, whether that is a cyclical thing or it's just one of those things or opposing defenses have figured out Hamilton's offense, uh, I, I think that's up for debate. Uh, the defense has been playing well, uh, maybe not up to uh, their standards because I'm expecting a little bit more. But when you hold a team like Ottawa, who has a, a pretty good offense, to seven field goals, you probably should win that football game. Uh, and special teams really hasn't excited me a lot in Hamilton this season. They got some good pieces, but uh, they need to step up their game. Let's shift to Jeremiah Masoli. Where do you stand on the Masoli debate? Um, is there still one? I mean, Johnny, football's out of town, right? This is your starting quarterback, Hamilton. He's the guy. Uh, I, think, nobody... I, think, I think the debate now is whether, whether he's the answer. I think he is mostly. I still wonder from time to time why he will take some of the chances that he does. Right. And then, and then, and then won't take them when really he should. Like those two last plays against Ottawa, you really need to just chuck and duck. You know, you, you, you've got to let that ball fly, even if you go, I see three opposition jerseys down there to my one. You know, you don't want the sack. You're, you're cruising along here. You're, you're within striking distance. You've got to get rid of it. On the other side of uh, that coin, uh, what concerns me with Mazzoli from time to time is he thinks he can make every throw. And he's got a strong arm and he's got uncanny abilities, but he can't make every throw. No one can. And and when he's kind of retreating and rolling to his right and he insists he's going to fire it downfield 20 to 25 yards and zip it to his receiver, that's when I kind of go, boy, if he could just get rid of that kind of mistake, I think he'd be that much more consistent. So there are little things here. because I, I think there's great improvement in Jeremiah Mazzoli over the, the times that I saw him first as a, as a relief pitcher in this league mm -hmm. you know, and thought, mm, I, I don't know, is this guy 
really a starting quarterback? He's made a believer out of me since uh, the second half of last season and into this year. I think there are little, there's little things that need to be tinkered with with him. Uh, when and when not to take those chances. I think that's the big deal with him. And can, it, I don't think that's that hard to learn, that hard to get into his head. I think the coaches need to do that and probably want to do that and, and are doing that as much as they can. And if he does that, like I say, I think it'll be a whole heck of a lot more effective. Uh, Masoli's made a believer out of me as well, and I said that towards the end of last season, and certainly at the start of this season. But he, he's he's one of those guys, and we've seen this type of player before, where uh, you know, you're yearning for more, and maybe that's just more consistent, uh, good play. Because there are times where he is really good, and there yeah. are times where he'll make you know the the, the odd mistake, or uh, as 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 happened against Ottawa, the last two plays of the game, he takes sack and then sack, where you want at least an opportunity to make a play. Maybe there's a pass interference call, whatever the case is, you want that opportunity to to get into the end zone. You mentioned the name Johnny Manziel. Uh, the big trade happened uh, a week ago uh, yesterday. Did it? make sense do you think for the tie cats to trade him now i think it made a bunch of sense for a bunch of reasons but the one reason it didn't is that's supposedly a really good quarterback who everyone believes is going to be able to get the canadian game and is going to be a difference maker and in a league where your quarterback is just one hit away you know from being injured you've got to have that secondary option i'm not sure that the tie cats do have it right now from so many other uh, points of view, it made some sense. They got a, a burner back in Chris Williams, and they were looking for one. They wanted better rushing from their defensive line, and they got Jamal Westerman. Uh, so, I mean, and they got all those draft picks, too. And I think they had a good relationship with Johnny Manziel. He had a good relationship with them, with June Jones, with Eric Tillman, with everybody else. And they had decided, like you and I had decided, I think, Rick, that Jeremiah is always good enough to lead this team. Okay, well, we brought Johnny in. He expected to get a chance. We thought he might get a chance, and he's not getting it. So now, what do we do that's good for him as well? It, that shouldn't be the priority, the first thing. I'm just saying it might have been in the mix with right. him. So all of these little reasons come together to make the deal uh, ha- make some sense at this point in time. I- I'm surprised, though, that Hamilton at least didn't put him into a game or two just to yeah. just just not even showcase him, just to showcase him, I guess, more so to the fans to say, hey, here you go. I think you're right, but again, they have, they have faith in Jeremiah Mazzoli, and so not this last home game, but the previous home game when people were calling for Johnny Manziel, perhaps, I don't want to put uh, words in anybody's mouth, but just consider perhaps if you're in Hamilton management, maybe you go, I don't want this every week. Yeah. We, you know, we think we've got the guy, we love him, he loves this team, we're going places with him. We don't need this every week because he threw two incompletions and it was a two and out and all of a sudden people are clamoring for Johnny Manziel. You want some clarity too. And I think that uh, the Ticats definitely have that when it comes to their offense and their quarterbacking situation. Now they just have to solve the problems that you're talking about. Move the football, get into red zone, and, and why are we stalling exactly here? Figure that one out, and they'll be rolling again, I think. We're chatting with uh, Don Landry, columnist with CFL.ca, here on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Rick, in for Scott. Uh, Johnny Manziel reportedly took first-team reps at practice today. Uh, Do you expect him to start Friday? Yeah, I do. I put him in. I wrote about that in my takeaways column, which is on the CFL.ca site. I just put up a couple of hours ago. And uh, it it makes some sense to me to not play him on Friday night. The Alouettes were suffering from all kinds of protection issues. Do you want to bring your new franchise quarterback in and have him get ragdolled by the Edmonton Eskimos? No, let's 
especially when he doesn't have much of the playbook in his head. I think he'll have enough after a week and a half. Some argue, hey, he still probably won't be ready mentally. You should hold him out another week, but I don't think so. I think he'll have enough of the playbook in there that he can do good things and then if he if he screws it up because he's you know not looking at the right receiver or whatever and things break down, well then we're in for Johnny football stuff. We're in for Sandlot football and the excitement that I think that we could see from Johnny Manziel. So yeah, I say put him in. It's time, isn't it? Aren't we aren't we a little tired of this, Rick? We want to see the guy play. We've waited six weeks, you know, minus the preseason, which I guess doesn't really count, although we got a little snippet, a little glimpse of what he can do. It'll be interesting to see what he does in the regular season when first stringers are going at him, when, uh, you know, opposing defenses are really geared up to stop him. Uh, So it'll be interesting Friday night as Hamilton takes on the Alouettes in Montreal. Uh, Back to the trade. Uh, Chris Williams, Jamal Westerman, two first-round draft picks from a Montreal team that is rebuilding and, and might be at the yep. bottom of the standings for at least a few more seasons for Manziel and a couple of O-linemen and Tony Washington and Landon Rice. Fair value for both sides, or do you, are you leaning towards one team winning that deal right now? Um, boy. Uh, you know, I, I uh, these questions I kind of bristle at, Rick, because I mean, I, I, I'm that guy who goes, we'll see, you know, because uh, I'm not sure. I, I know that each side can make its case, right? But, uh, again, Hamilton has a quarterback. They needed some other things. They got them. And, hey, bonus chips, too. Uh, draft picks. Uh, so I, I think you'd say they maybe won this trade, at least right now. Uh, it's a much better quarterback trade for Eric Tillman than the one he made as general manager of the Edmonton Eskimos when he sent Ricky Ray to <laughs> Toronto. He's yeah. got that now. At least he, now he can say this, I did well in this deal. It only works at... You know what? It doesn't work out for Montreal either way in the long run, and here's why I say that. I mean, if Manziel's a bust, obviously, poor trade. If he's good, well, they get him for a year and a half because we all know what his plan is, and that's to go back to the NFL. And if he plays well enough that the Alouettes get out of the basement, start playing good football, and he becomes what you know guys like Eric Tillman and June Jones said he could be in the Canadian Football League, then he's not going to remain in the Canadian Football League. Someone in the United States is going to give him another chance in the NFL. So it appears that the Ticats have won this trade. But having said that, what else can you do if you're Montreal at this point, right? I mean, you needed something to generate fan interest, to generate excitement in the locker room and in the streets of Montreal, and this certainly has done that. Yeah, they're, they're certainly swinging for the fences on this deal, and if it pans out, great for them. If not, uh, they're they're back to uh, square one. Uh, you mentioned your five takeaways article on CFL.ca. Uh, there was a little snippet what I what I thought was maybe one of the highlights of this CFL season, and that was the stamps flashcards. Absolutely yeah. hilarious. <laughs> they, so they had. Uh, look, I'm going to admit this, Rick. I've only seen portions of the Goonies. All right. Yes. Now this might. I might have to turn in my. I'm a child of the '80s uh, decade card on this because I haven't seen the Goonies all the way through. Right. But I thought it was hilarious. And then they've got Pamela Anderson on Baywatch, yeah, yeah. Uh, that sort of thing. It's 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 really funny to see what some of these teams will choose because they they don't all do it all the time, but once in a while they will. They just have flashcards, and you wonder what went through somebody's mind why they have the sloth from Goonies on there. I mean, <laughs> I wonder exactly whose idea that was and, and why it became why it came to be. It might catch fire, though. We might see other teams, especially yeah. in the CFL, which is a lot more fun than the NFL, but we might see a lot of this. Yeah, and we've seen it in college football. Yeah. The Argos did it as well. I'm, one of, I'm not sure if they did it last season or if they just did it 
in Scott Milanovich's last season, where they had like a big pinball head would pop up once in a while. Yes. <laughs> Whatever that was. So, But we do see it a lot in college football south of the border. And, uh, yeah, whatever is uh, the quickest way to get to your defensive captain what you need to be doing out there, uh, the better. And if you can have a little sense of humor with it, have some fun with it, that's so much the better, too. I Definitely. Yeah, fans uh, will certainly benefit from that for sure. Don, appreciate the time. Great work on CFL.ca. Looking forward to your upcoming articles as well. Thanks a lot, Rick. You take care. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.